We are joined with Jason Ellis from Supersource Nashville. They have been a sponsor for this podcast for almost three years. We are so honored to work with them. This is a great company and a great man. Jason, what can people expect if they give you a call? Um, we'll come out, do a complete audit of their facility, see in which ways we could help them approve, if any, um, and see what we can do as far as helping them save some money. So the first thing they got to do is just give us a call, 770-337-1143, or they can email me directly at jellis at supersourceinc.com. We'll come out, take a look at your operations, see in which ways we can help. That's amazing. So if you're out there right now listening to this, call Jason Ellis or email him today. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, the tastiest hour of talk in Music City. Now here's your host, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host. We are powered by Gordon Food Service, and we are excited to come at you late on a Monday. We will be joined shortly with our co-host, Caroline Galzen. We are going to be joined today with our special guest, Margaret Littman, and she is a freelance writer, and mostly I know her from her writing in the Nashville scene, where she wrote several writer's picks this year, and uh, in this episode, we talked to her about that. We talked to her about her process how they figure out who does the the best of Nashville writers picks and all the things. Uh, this is a fun interview and she is just amazing. And we always love having writers in here because they really have a different perspective on everything. And I know that we get stuck all the time inside the building. And it's nice to know what writers are thinking and how they choose what they go after and what they do. And that's what we talk about today. So this was a lot of fun and, um, don't have a lot to start with. Sorry, this is coming out a little bit late today. We are, uh, we're busy. So we're going to jump in right now with Margaret Littman. Super excited today to welcome in Margaret Littman. And she, I guess I know her as a writer for the Nashville scene, but you're a freelance writer. Correct. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. It's an honor to have you. And welcome, Caroline. Hi, I'm back again. Back again. Well, yes. I'm back. I'm here. I'm here today. Wow. Well, we are so excited to have you here. I think that we have so many. I, I love having writers in the studio because we were kind of talking beforehand, just that you see so many things around the town and there's your perspective is so varied around town. And um, it's just good to have you here. I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but it's going to be fun. Thanks. So we did, I, I want to start off with Best of Nashville. Is that okay? Sure. We just had the Best of Nashville show. We had Chris Chamberlain in, and you were one of the writers. You had 10 writers picks this year in the Best of Nashville. That sounds right. I didn't count them, but sure. <laughs> well, I want to start with one that's very near and dear to my heart. Well, let's ask this okay. question. How do you decide which, how much, do you get a you get eight or you get 10. Is there, is there a, a meeting where you get doled out so many? There is a meeting. I'm not in that meeting, but so as we get close to best of Nashville, we all sort of pull together pitches for different editors about who we think should be included. So in a little 
in a way, I'm sort of keeping these ideas going all year. And then we pitch in different categories. And I, when I'm coming up with pitches, I try to think about, obviously, what what the best is, but best is, you know, really kind of a subjective term. So I also think about best of Nashville as a way to maybe underscore some folks who are doing interesting things who haven't gotten a lot of credit for it. Um, Try to, try to have a little bit of depth and nuance beyond just places that are great food. Um, and then I pitch them and then there is some magic meeting again. I'm not in it where they figure out how that all works together. And I suspect they get some pitches that are the same. So then they figure out who needs to write that and then we get assignments. So when- I was going to say, do you kind of reverse engineer any of them where you're like, this is a place I really want to make sure I'm highlighting. So I could say this category, that category, that category, just to make sure that I get them in there somewhere. Yeah. Sometimes if there's somewhere I really want to get in, I think about what's a category where this might work. Mm -hmm. And if there's, uh, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but um, something, well, it wasn't this year, it was last year's Best of Nashville. Um, I really wanted to do something about that um, soft service station in East Nashville. I think what they've done at that corner um, on Porter Road has really made that neighborhood really interesting. And so I had to think about, okay, how can we get this in there? Because I knew it wouldn't compete you can't see my air quotes compete with you know best restaurant so how do you think about a category where something like that could fit in for the bigger ones like best chef best restaurant all of those did those get assigned to specific people or is that part of that pitch process as well where somebody will come in and say hey I feel really strongly that you know this chef should be named best chef this year and it's kind of a I mean it's a little bit of the same process but yeah, we all make pitches or, and in those cases, since we kind of know what those important categories are, there's some back and forth about saying why we think this place is. And uh, sometimes it seems so obvious, you know, sometimes my pitch will be, we can't have a conversation because this is the only option. And I definitely felt like that um, about Kisser this year for Best Restaurant. There are lots of good new restaurants, but when we're talking about that kind of award, it felt really clear to me. Um, but of course, other people had other ideas. Totally agree. And I think too, in particular with, with Kisser, it's like people who have been working for such a long time towards this goal. And when you see them finally get to that finish line, it's so exciting. Um, really for them and for our community as well that has kind of like followed them on that journey. Well, there was a really cool one and it's very close and near and dear to my heart. I was going to begin to say this earlier. Let's do kind of a a small case study. Killjoy, right? So it's my sister's shop and best proof that zero proof doesn't have to be boring. Is that, I think that's what it was. When did you come up with that? Like, how did you pitch that? Was that something you were there and you saw and you're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then you pitched it and they're like, yes, do it. Or when did you have the idea that that would be one of your picks? So I don't even remember how I originally got connected with her, Um, but I've written about her and the shop a couple of times and both the shop, right, right as she was opening it, um, she's done some interesting events. She's done some events with the... Uh, Nashville Jewish Book Series, and 
obviously I've just been in the store and shop there and I think what she's doing is so interesting and has been sort of transformative for the city. Um, I told her this, but um, so I host a big Passover Seder every year and Passover is a holiday that has, I mean, wine is actually part of the ceremony. It's a lot of drinking and I have several friends who are sober who come to my Seder. And so usually there's sort of an alternative and it was right as she was opening the shop. And so I went and I said, can you help me figure out how we can do an all alcohol free Seder? And we had so much fun because I bought an absurd (laughs) amount of stuff and then everyone kind of tasted it. And it felt like in some ways, like the satyrs of my youth where there were so many bottle empty <laughs> bottles at the end of the night but it was all not alcoholic and even the people who do drink didn't feel like they had sort of missed anything and I just thought okay if you know the 10 of us have had this completely transformative experience what other experiences are other people having and the more I talk to people I think she really is um or they I guess are um really changing the way that we talk about non-alcoholic drinks here. And that's, I mean, that is a great example of something that I think is more than just a new shop, but really um, a different way to think about things. Well, she's changing something that a lot of every single person associates entertainment and going out and having fun with alcohol. And really it's a, it's a ritual of, cheersing and having something in your hand it doesn't nest you don't need the alcohol i think people there's a perception that if i drink alcohol I'll loosen up but really it's just having something in your hand and being social it's a process and i think that there's a lot of really good products out there and it just it's like you said everybody's there with with empty bottles and maybe there's not the regret the next day and the phone calls and the hangover and you're like oh that was really fun I think, too, it's helped really, like, bring a light on that there is a large demographic of people who are seeking that out. You know, for me, I I do drink, and when we are putting together, like, our cocktail menu at the restaurant, I maybe previously wouldn't have considered so much of, like, highlighting spirit-free things until you know, something like Killjoy comes along. I'm like, oh, wow, there really is a big audience for this. And we need to be considering that when we're, you know, making new menus and, you know, making additional options, make sure we're highlighting options for people besides just a can of Coke. (laughs) I think part of what Killjoy, what Stephanie is doing, what Killjoy is doing is, I mean, a lot of the things they sell, you can buy elsewhere. A lot of the things they sell, I've ordered from elsewhere but she is so fun, right? And she <laughs> it, she just, like, has one of those fun, infectious personalities. And so I think part of what she's doing is sort of saying, hey, this doesn't have to be a drag. Whether it's something you're, you know, choosing to do all the time, whether you have addiction, or it's just something you're trying to moderate, she's, she's not... Um, making the experience of not drinking feel lesser. And I think that's really joyful. And there's a, um, there's, I, I love her educational components to it. Like it's a, this isn't a Killjoy ad. I'm just saying like, well, I just think that what she's doing is there's an educational side. If you are sober, curious, if you're just curious and you want to learn more, she's got books you can check out. There's like a fun little thing. So this process we're talking about, yeah. you go and this is why you see that. And then you pitch 
best proof, zero proof, doesn't have to be boring. And then they come back and say, yes, do that. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. And then that's it. Yes. And then that, that's in and that's the thing. Yes. Okay. I mean, then, you know, they edit it. <laughs> to land the plane a little bit. Right. They have edit, they edit it. They have questions. I have questions. Blah, blah, blah. But yes, that's how it works. Do you get more excited? Do you get, do you get handed stories? Do they call you and say, sure. hey, look, we need PR company said this new place is Shulman's is opening and we need you to go write an article about it? Yeah, sure. People assign me things. Yeah. Are those fun or do you find is, is the fun part of what would you do finding your own story and jumping in and learning about it and then doing the investigative work and then writing about it? Is it like a child to you? There's, um, there's, it's both. Yes. Yes. Sometimes an editor will come to me, um, whether it's Patrick at the scene or someone else and say, Hey, we'd like you to write about this. Um, and then sometimes I come up with ideas and pitch them. I sort of figure just my like philosophy as a reporter is if I'm curious about something, if I think something is weird or interesting, probably somebody else does. And so that is kind of that digging for things and, um, you know, they say gathering string, but looking at all these things and trying to find patterns and putting them together. So yeah, that part is really fun. And sometimes when you're, um, or when I'm reporting something like that, you know, I might spend weeks or even months reporting something that's intensive. And by the time you get to actually writing it, that's, that's kind of the easy part because you've spent so much time in the weeds for this. So yeah, I, I do think that's really fun. But, well, one, sometimes it's easy just to have someone say, go do this, and then you do it, and you're done. But also, that's all how I learn about things, right? I mean, I'm always looking for ideas. I'm always, you know, li um, listening to people in restaurants or seeing what people talk about. And so sometimes an editor will come to me with an idea that might be not go right about this, but hey, have you been noticing this? And then together we kind of refine the pitch and that's pretty um, interesting too. And that those are the relationships with editors that I like where it feels like we're a team and we're working together to kind of make this story and kind of going back and forth about what's right and who we should talk to um, versus sort of, I know some writers think about the editor relationship as sort of adversarial, like, a teacher correcting your work. Um, but I don't, I don't really think about it like that. And, uh, those aren't the relationships that I like to have. Do you ever look at stories you write and wonder the effect of it's going to have on, do you write anything that's, I don't want to say salacious, but where you're reporting on somebody or something that could be negatively looked upon by them? Oh, um, and how do you feel like, I mean, cause let's just say you have a friend and that friend um, does something or is something that you have to report on that doesn't necessarily, that's not going to paint them in the best light, but it's true. But this is a story. Like, do you feel like, does this need to get out? Like, why am I doing this story? What's going to be the end result? Is it going to be because people want to read it and it's interesting and the public needs to know? Or is this a, I know a bunch of people are going to read this and they're going to love it, but it's going to hurt somebody. Do you ever have that dilemma? Oh, I think all the time constantly as I'm reporting and writing like what what are the ramifications of what I'm writing um why am I writing it why does someone want to read it yeah and what's going to happen when I'm writing it I'm very aware of 
again, can't see my air quotes, but the power that what we write has. And it's um, kind of amazing to me sometimes how something that you might think is sort of small and throwaway has an impact, both like for good and not. So yeah, I'm very conscious of that. Um, and it, it's sometimes it's not always the stories that you expect to be like that that are. Um, I had to write a very difficult story earlier this year about Once Upon a Time in France, the restaurant in East Nashville. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there were allegations. Um, from some folks who had worked there about some health code violations and also some uh, sexual harassment allegations. Is it the big Reddit thread? Yeah, there was a big Reddit thread. There was a big Facebook thread. And so I probably spent about um, six, I don't know, a month to six weeks reporting that. And I honestly would have rather done anything else. Mm. Um I was very aware with every single interview I did, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think I talked to about 12 former employees, and I spent countless hours. I went through every health department report they had had since they had been open, and I, I was very aware of what it would mean to them. I've been to their restaurants a lot. I know them as a family. I live in East Nashville. Um my grandmother lived in France when she escaped Poland. Like, I have this connection to French community. Um, also, when Emma made this allegation, I feel like this is part of the whole, like, we believe women. Sure. And um, particularly, it's very rare for a woman to be willing to use her name publicly. And I felt like we had a responsibility to report on that. But every every second of reporting that, I kept thinking about what the ramifications were for the Arnts, what the ramifications were for Emma. Um, Emma's a student at Lipscomb, which has some codes of conduct mm. and sure so there's a I, lot of that you gotta think about. Right. So that was um that was very I was pretty miserable <laughs> you ever, writing that, actually. Do you ever have a situation where you would say to the person that you're, you know, interviewing or getting information from, like, hey, are you sure that you want to share this with me? Or have you thought about what the potential fallout could be from this? You know, s anything like that? Or is that kind of, you know, against the way that, like, reporting should be done because I don't know I didn't go to school to be a writer I kind of don't know the codes of how these things work yeah it is a weird kind of threading the needle yeah. I probably wouldn't ever say are you sure you want mm -hmm. this to be public like or have you thought about the ramifications that's you know in that case for Emma or I used to do a lot of financial reporting mm -hmm. and I was always surprised the personal financial details people would tell me <laughs> and I sort of wanted to say are you sure you want to tell me this so I wouldn't necessarily say it like that but I do try to be very clear about you know we're on the record are you okay with me using your name mm -hmm. you know like being very direct and clear about what might happen mm -hmm. um, without letting them make the decision with whoever they need to talk to about whether they want to do it um, I also try to be very clear with people about what, what the process is. 
particularly, you know, it's different if you're talking to a chef who's been interviewed for a thousand magazines or a college student who's never talked to the press before, but some very, try to be very clear about, hey, I'm interviewing all these people, some off the record, some on the record. This is what off the record means. This is what on background means, like explaining all that. And then also talking about, hey, not, not everything will appear in print. This is the timeline, that sort of thing. Um, the other thing, I want to go back to something, Brandon, you said about the other process that we were going through with that particular story. It was, we felt like it was a story that had to be told, particularly because it was on Reddit and it was on Facebook and a lot of people in the community were saying, like, is it safe to eat here or whatever. So we felt like we had to cover it. But we also tried very hard, like, not to cover all the salacious details because there was also a lot of stuff that was gossip and a lot of stuff about who was cheating on who and, who, you know, all this stuff that, you know, so every interview I would say, like, I don't care about that. Like, if it's somehow relevant to these six points that I would outline, then fine, we can talk about it. But that's, like, I'm not here just to, like, dig but, up gossip. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was, or that particular article was hard to kind of, but thread that do you, there's something seductive about that though. I mean, even in that moment, and maybe it's because I'm shallow, but when you're in that moment and they want to tell you that stuff, do you ever be like, wow, that will be juicy for the article or this could be something. And but you, do you have to like fight back a feeling to say, no, that's not pertaining to the specific thing I'm looking for. Or does your brain start to go, maybe that could, I could use that because that's a. Um, I mean, certainly there, I mean, there's a moment where you're just like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you just told me that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm taking notes. I'm always thinking about how things fit together. But yeah, in that particular, for that particular article, no, I was really trying not to. Um, I guess try not to make things worse, like whatever, you know, it yeah. is. I try to report on things responsibly. And I do think, you know, we don't really have restaurant criticism per se in Nashville, the way you do in some other cities. So I do think we have a response. I have a responsibility to tell a big picture of restaurants in Nashville and food in Nashville. So I don't always just want to write about places that are great. I want to give people a full picture, but I want to do it in a way that's not gossipy or salacious. I guess. Sure. Uh, a way that's informative. Yes. But I mean, when people tell you the stuff that's like, Oh, I can't believe you're telling me that that's always kind of fun just to have in your own personal memory bank sometimes <laughs> mm -hmm. and we're live we I mean, all a love a good piece of gossip this right? show when that happens it's like do we take that out like i don't people have there's been a couple of times that people have said things while we're interviewing them and i'm and and we kind of have that same reaction where i'm like are you sure you want to say that i i do feel like there's been maybe a couple of times we've done somebody a solid and been like we need to we need to take that out that's not going to sound great. I have uh, absolutely the worst poker face. <laughs> so sometimes what happens is somebody will tell me something and I just have this 
even if I'm just sitting there, because a lot of reporting and doing an interview, well, I don't have to tell you how to interview, but a lot of what you do is you're just sitting there quietly and seeing what the person says next. But sometimes I know I have a look on my face that says, I cannot believe (laughs) that happened, or you just told me that. And then I can tell from their reaction, then they think, oh, should I have not said that? Uh, But I don't, you know, I try not to do gotcha Sure. Stuff. We, um, Brandon and I look at each other. That's our, like, <laughs> we're on a podcast. You can't see what we're doing. But when somebody says something crazy, we're like. <laughs> but I'm terrible because I'm like, tell me more about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm like, I like, I'm like, holy shit. They just said that. Like, tell me, get me into that. And I'm, I'm. But then we'll leave and we'll call each other and I'll be like, hey, we, oh, we can't. You got to take that sure. out. Sure. I, yeah, I find I myself, say, and then what happened? And then, yeah, I mm-hmm. find myself, I fall victim to that all the time because I, like anybody else, I'm like, that sounds whoa, that's juicy, and people want to hear. I mean, I, I don't know. I always constantly, when I figure out who I want to have on the show, I kind of read your articles and I read Chris's articles and I go, oh, that sounds really interesting. Let's learn more about that because you only have so much real estate right. and you have to pick out so many things. I'm like, I can talk to them for an hour about this and we can go into all the long form details of everything. And I'm, that's how I choose. I think, kind of think, well, this would be interesting. I want to hear that. So when people get into that, oh, I shouldn't have said that thing. I think that's the really interesting right. stuff, but it's tough because I want to build community and I want to build it right. up. That's kind of our goal, but right. I still fall. I, I, and then I feel terribly in bed and I go, why, why do I want to put that out there? Why do I feel like that's something people should hear because I want people to listen or because why that's going to hurt them. If I put this out there, then I go, I don't want to do that. And I, I take it out. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any, um, kind of gap in food reporting in Nashville or do you think that there's a story that's not being told or, or something that you wish that, that people would, you know, be more aware of or talking about more? I do think that we, as a city, don't don't do food criticism well, and I and I think that's a gap. Um, Lisa Donovan and I have talked about this a lot. In that, if food criticism is done well, it elevates everyone. Absolutely. And if we only have this environment where. We're talking about the good places, and I absolutely understand that because if you have limited space and limited pages and you want to, you're trying to send people to the places that are good. And so then the places that are not good kind of fall off the radar. But um, but if you do, if you do that, then um, if you have some, you know, and I'm not a food critic, but if you have good criticism I think it does give feedback that um elevates everyone you know this is a big topic of that um unreasonable hospitality book uh, that they are so motivated by the feedback that they get that kind of makes them do better totally and and I think it's hard too when as restaurants the the criticism we're getting is mostly from Yelp and Google. And a lot of times you just have to take that with a grain of salt. It's, it's very, you know, Hey, I came in and I'm mad that you don't have fried chicken on the menu because that's really what I wanted to eat today. So I'm going to write a bad review or I I don't know. It's just, it it is, it's hard. When you think about Kay West back in the day, I mean, Kay West was a critic and Mm -hmm. she famously caught Mario's back in the day with their veal 
Marcel, a veal piccata, veal salt and boca. I don't know what it was, but she took the veal. She was like, this doesn't taste like veal and took it to a lab and it was actually pork. <laughs> and it was this veal gate thing, you know, where she called Mario's because they were serving pork and calling it veal and charging $50 a plate for it. And she was like, no, this isn't it. But like, that's journalism. That's right. figuring it out. That's informing the public of buyer be with this is what people are doing. And there's nobody holding anybody accountable. And Frank Bruni for the New York Times is who you're referencing in the Will Gadara book, Unreasonable Hospitality. And I talked about it yesterday. It's funny. We talked about That's this funny. yesterday is that he they they were a two star restaurant and they were trying to get four stars and they got three stars and they were really working towards four and they've been practicing every single day and for two months. And then Will took one day off to go on a date with his girlfriend. And while they were like at a movie, Frank Bruni came in the restaurant and he left the movie. Middle movie, went home, took a shower, showed up at the restaurant by the time he got his salads and then continued with service. Like that's how important food critics can be. And it's a major deal. I mean, it motivates every person. I mean, that is the the. North Star, you want that review. That's the, but it's as a restaurant tour myself, and I know you feel this, there's no way to really get the best of Nashville to win a best of Nashville might be the closest thing we have to really a, I'm accepted people recognize our hard work. I mean, I think that's a recognition thing. And there's not really anything out there that says that in Nashville on a consistent basis. And it does feel great to be recognized by the writers because you know, the the readers is just a, who has the best Instagram following or sent out the most email blasts or whatever, most of the time. Not in every case, certainly, but, you know, a lot of the t- Like, I love Daddy's Dogs Gets Most Romantic Restaurant. Like, that's just, that's amazing. I love those guys, and that's just hilarious and so fun. Um, but, you know, to get that that writer's recognition is is really makes you feel great. It is special. When you write about a restaurant, do you feel... Do you feel that responsibility? Do you feel a responsibility that I'm writing something great about them? Or do you feel like you're critical? Do you feel like you have a little bit of that? No, I absolutely feel that responsibility. Um, I do try to be critical and fair. The other thing that I feel a real responsibility for is you know, not everything is for me. Not everything is for everyone. So I really try to think about if something doesn't work for me. I mean, I bring different people with me to eat. So, cause there's some things I don't eat, bring someone else to eat that, sure. like someone with kids, someone without kids, like try to think, um, I really try to have gone somewhere multiple times before I write about it. Cause it's not, I don't think it's fair if someone just has a great day or a terrible day. Like you need to see some consistency. Um, I know this has come up relatively recently with some coverage in the Tennessee. And I don't think it's fair to cover a restaurant really early, like in the first week or two or month even. And I know they need that sort of, I know it's catch 22 because they kind of need that early press to get people in there. So in that case, you know, we might write about something like I wrote about Shulman's opening, but it's not really, you know, a review because... Service was poor and they didn't have this ready. Like, right. you're not saying that stuff. You're right. saying, hey, but it's open. Because nobody know. like, you don't know anything yeah. those first weeks. Um, and so I don't think that's fair. Um, so I try to think about that. Um, yeah. I mean, those are all, those are all valid things you've got to look at. We just opened Chago's, you know, 
less than a month ago. Do you feel like you're review ready? I yeah, I mean I I feel solid now, but when you first open, I mean Chris Chamberlain came in to our friends and family and we talked about it on their best in Nashville episode last week that he was like, well, the alarm went off five times. Like the smoke alarm went off, but like we were figuring out the sensitivity of the smoke alarm. We doubled the size of the kitchen and the hoods and the power of the fan and like that kind of stuff. We're still figuring out. And if there's a critic in there that day, your first day and the smoke alarm goes off and there's a little strobe light happening for half of your meal, you're like, what is this? Like that's, we got to work through those kinks. Right. But well, that's all fixed now. But that's friends and family. Like no one should think friends and family is real, right? Well, um. and and he, he essentially said that, like you know, it was a lovely meal and everything was great. Thank you for inviting me. He lives right behind the restaurant, so I mean, it was a come on down. We'd love to have you come by, and it was great. I think that's another thing that um, Chris and I try to do and try to think about is, well, obviously, I'll cover anything in the city or suburbs we do sort of have areas of expertise you know sometimes he'll message me and say hey what's going on in this east nashville thing because that's the side of town i live in if anything beer related comes in i send it to him um because yeah (laughs) i could write it but he's you know this is his area of expertise and so i think that works i mean i think that's true right in any industry with anything but the more you kind of figure out where your depth of knowledge is, the better. Is there like a writer's poker night? You said you don't have a good poker face, but like, do you guys hang out? Do you guys all meet at Lakeside Lounge and like you and Chris <laughs> and I don't know, a, a K West or do you guys all hang out and kind of have a, hey, look, let's just shoot the shit and, and off the record, let's vent about whatever or talk. Do you have a, like a support group for writers? I mean, if there's that group, I'm not invited to that group. But uh, <laughs> there are there are some groups. There is a group, um, sort of an informal group of women in media, women writers who get together maybe twice a year or quarterly. That's interesting. And that has been super interesting to see how that group has changed since um, as the city has changed. I moved. I went here. I Came here originally to go to Vanderbilt, graduated, left, lived a bunch of places, lived in Chicago for a long time, and moved back in 2007. And that was one of the things that I missed when I moved back. I mean, in in Chicago, I did have that group of journalist friends. I mean, I went to journalism school, went to grad school there. So I did have this very intense kind of journalism circle and lots of people who we would get together for lunch and who I would call and say, I have no idea how to report this or get this piece of information. And when I first moved back, I felt like I didn't have that community because it was just a different city. And it doesn't feel like that anymore. There's plenty there. There is sort of that peer group now. Oh, good. Which I like a lot. Well, that's a good transition to your initial kind of wanted to have conversation around the Me Too movement and... Yeah, I transition to that from. Well, yeah, something I was kind of thinking about, because I feel like there's always these over the years, not with you specifically, but I feel like I I hear about, oh, this writer is working on this story or this writer is working on that story. And then the story never seems to materialize for whatever reason. But, you know, it's probably just gossip. Um, It seems like there was so much um, attention and conversation around restaurant culture changing in particular around the Me Too movement. And then I think as we moved into the COVID years and we talked about, you know, workplaces being more equitable and, and better treatment of employees and, and that sort of thing. Um, do you feel like that conversation has, has died down? Do you feel like the, 
the culture has really shifted? Do you think that there's still a lot of problems left to address? What, what are you hearing and observing? Um, this is definitely one of those things that I'd probably give you a different answer depending on the day because some days I do feel like things are better. And even the fact that we can have this conversation, I think, means things are better, mm. that people are willing to talk about things. But then some days it does feel, the stories I hear feel like nothing has changed and it's really, um, it's depressing and it does feel sort of insurmountable. So many times I'll write an article about a restaurant and then I get these sort of back channel messages where people say, why'd you write about that guy? He's such a jackass. This happened, this happened, this happened. And, you know, I feel terrible. One, I don't know if any of that is true, although I generally think people don't reach out about that if, it's, if there isn't something there. Two, like I can't know those things if people don't tell me. Um, and then it's sort of hard to figure out how to move forward with that. Is it, is it a story? Is it something the public needs to know? Um, but then also my, I always ask, you know, I'll, I mean, anyone is welcome to reach out to me about that and anything is off the record unless they don't want it to be, but I'll always ask for follow-up. And then I also say, when I get those sorts of messages, who should I be writing about? Who you know, are not the jackasses, <laughs> who are the places that are really taking this seriously. And that's also sort of depressing because it's not like, that's not a very long list that consistently people come to me. Um, you know, you and Tony come up a lot oh, thank you. Um, on that list. Like they're, um, I really appreciate that. Julia at Henrietta Red, like, like uh, Claire, yeah. a dozen. There are people who come up saying like, this is a great place to work. Um, Bill Miller's places, you know, people come to me a lot and talk about how great those places are to work for. I mean, he has, I think, 600 employees at this point. Wow. And, you know, Nudie's, Schulman's, the Sinatra place, House of Cards, and rank and file servers will tell me he will walk in and know their name. That's so nice to hear. I think especially for that downtown scene, because I feel like what of course sucks up so much of the energy around there is the, the Steve Smith of it all, you know, yeah. which is, I mean, come on, how do you not, that's a, that's a shiny story. That's a that layup. Everybody wants to I mean, that's, yeah. that's the easy story. Cause the guy, and he wants you to write that story. Oh yeah. I mean, he, t he's, I mean, I spend way too much time, thinking about Steve Smith. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, that's that's all right. But I, you know, I wrote um, that story, a story earlier this summer, or this summer, about um, some of the problems that the musicians at the Steve Smith venues are having getting paid. And like, to me, that is... That's a perfect example of a story that is not gossip, is not... I mean, they're definitely salacious, crazy parts of it. Um, but to me, like, that's the essence of Nashville is these musicians. And if they're being told, I mean, I think a lot of us don't know. Like, they're being told what they can play, like, specifically what songs they can play, what they can't play. A lot of them, there's no way even for the people who are in those bars to, like, know what the band's name is or where else they can see them play so it's not really advancing the their career the way that you might think and then they 
aren't getting paid or they're getting paid even worse than we all imagine, like that is something that's super relevant to Nashville. Mm. And that's, that's super frustrating to me to figure out how, yeah, how you report on that and how as a city we figure out how to reckon with that. And also like, I'm also aware that, you know, Steve Smith did take Tootsie's and he did save it. Like that, that's a fact. Um, and a lot of the good parts of downtown wouldn't exist either. That's and very true. I either to his credit or discredit, depending on what your opinion is on the situation, you know, kind of create helped to create Broadway what it is now with all the tourism. And, sh- you know, Shawnee sat empty forever. I mean, that place was a just a... What's Shawnee? Exactly. It was an old Irish bar. That's where Honky Tonk Central is. I mean, it was Shawnee. I remember uh, going to Shawnee's. Do you remember this? Yeah. And then it closed, and that whole Honky Tonk Central was just empty for, God, like 10 years. I mean, it was just an empty building right there in the corner of, I think, 4th and Broad, right? I think it was still empty when I moved here, but I didn't And then the- all of a sudden... He made it Honky Tonk Central, and man, the life that that brought to I me, mean, what a prime spot. I mean, it just sat empty, and now, I mean, it's a, it's a, it was a huge turning point for that whole Broadway scene. I mean, when I was at Vanderbilt, my roommate worked at a bookstore called Rare Foreign and More on 2nd Avenue. I know that probably sounds weird to people that there was a bookstore on 2nd <laughs> Avenue, but true story, there were art galleries and bookstores, and we used to go pick her up after work because we didn't want her to leave work alone at whatever time that was eight o'clock on a Friday night on second Avenue. Like we didn't think that was safe. And so like to see that complete and total like turnover seven times or whatever, since then it does sort of make your head spin. And it's, you know, I, I understand why there are so many frustrations about Nashville today. I definitely have them myself. But like, I'd rather live somewhere where people want to go than where people want to li- leave. Um, so I do think as much as I am frustrated by Steve Smith, and I didn't mean to like get into talking about him so much, um, you know, he, he does also deserve some credit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree with you there. And, you know, some people might argue that it's still not that safe to be a woman by yourself at 8 o'clock on a Friday night on Second Avenue or Broadway, I, uh, in 2019, was, uh, I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before, I was uh, hosted a bachelorette party for a friend, and we did the whole downtown Broadway thing, and I had not been on Broadway on a weekend night at that hour, and it was, quite frankly, truly shocking to me, the way that, that men were acting. Um, I, d- I do think that has cycled a little bit. I do think there was a period, and I don't know what that magic sweet spot was, but 2011, yeah. 2012, where there was this energy and there were a lot of, it felt exciting to go down to Broadway and there was all this music and we were, you know, it city or whatever, but it did also feel safe. I, I agree and with you. I remember like my in-laws coming in town and taking, you know, my husband's parents out on a weekend night to Broadway. Now I would never do that in a million years. Um I probably wouldn't take them there after like 3 (laughs) p.m. Right. It is different. I mean, it is different. And there was always, and I don't want to demonize the alcohol or the drinking that was always there, but it is different. Um, There weren't people who would 
you know, throw up on your shoes at 3 p.m. It did feel like you could walk through the street without being harassed. And um, it's it's really upsetting to to have that environment, I think. It it seems that. Oh, I'm sorry, Brandon. I don't know. I just. I was just going to say, it seems that, you know, kind of we were talking about the culture earlier with like Me Too movement and all of these things. Has the culture really shifted? Well, you know, it's maybe not just within the restaurant world, just talking about kind of the culture of young people, the culture of young men. You know, we seem to, I think there's a perception that Gen Z, the younger generation has all these kind of, you know, shifting ideals from maybe when, when we were all in our twenties, but has it really changed that much if that's the behavior that, you know, is going on in the weekends? Let's take a short break to hear a quick word from our sponsors. Hey guys, we are supported by Sharpier's Bakery and we've been supported by Sharpier's Bakery for the last year. And I tell you, I couldn't be more proud of this partnership. Guys, they're a locally owned and operated bakery right here in Nashville for the last 36 years. Yes, they deliver fresh baked bread daily to your restaurant's back door and man, is it good. You want to know what kind of bread they make? Go check them out at sharpiesbakery.com. That's C-H-A-R-P-I-E-R-S bakery.com. So they have over 200 types of bread. And if you're wondering, well, hey, look, it's a special recipe that I like to use that, you know, we bake it in our house and it's just, it's a kind of a pain, but we, we like to do it. They can take your recipe and make that bread for you without any of the hassle, the mess, the labor, They'll just deliver right to your door every single day. It is freshly baked. They love to give you a tour of their facility. Give Erin Moso a call. Her number is 615-319-6453. You should do it now. What Chefs Want story is incredibly unique. The owner, Ron Trenier, met with a bunch of chefs in Louisville back in the early 2000s and asked them one simple question. What do you want? And the chefs, they responded emphatically. We want deliveries on Sunday. We want to be able to split any item that you sell. We want a frictionless experience where we feel like we're being served. And so you know what he did? Something crazy. He did just that. So What Chefs Want is not only a company that's delivering fresh produce, fresh seafood, fresh custom cut meats, specialty items, dairy, gourmet, all of that seven days a week, They also offer 24-7 customer support. You want to call, you want to text, you want to email, you can talk to somebody 24-7. Get your delivery seven days a week in an amazing selection of products. That is what chefs want. So if you ever wonder, why do they call it that? That's your reason. Check them out at whatchefswant.com. We are supported by Robbins Insurance a local insurance agency providing customized insurance policies, sound guidance, and attentive service. Robbins Insurance is the go-to agency for hospitality professionals in Nashville. Listen, Robbins knows how hard industry professionals work every single day. They also know how devastating accidents can be. Be it a grease fire that damages the kitchen, a severe storm that cuts off power, or a customer slip and fall incident. But with the extensive experience and the savvy to create a policy that protects your business from accidents like those, you can rest easy knowing that the work you've put in will not be for nothing. Visit Robin's website at robinsins.com to request a consultation or call Matthew Clements directly. His number is 863-409-9372. Protection you can trust. That's Robin's. 
I think there's a natural progression that happened in Nashville, and it's almost like National Geographic, if you think about just <laughs> carnal. Because well, when I used to drive Uber, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, it was 2016, maybe eight, seven, eight years ago, when it first started, Uber was kind of a thing, and I was like, well, this sounds fun. I get to go drive people around, and my dad is retired, and he would do it, and I was like, he'd tell me all these stories, and I was like, that sounds like a good time. And I had a blast, but people would get in your car from Milwaukee, and they would go, why are there so many bachelorettes here? I don't understand why. And, I, and and so I thought about that and I went, well, it's a safe place. There's like 50 bars. If you think every floor is a bar, like within five blocks, that's free cover charge for everybody. You get to get dressed up in cowboy boots and it's a fun thing. You can, you can, as a bachelorette party, you can go into 20 bars and everywhere you go, somebody's buying you drinks and it's just, a, it was fun. You get on stage and Mandy's getting married and, uh, and they wear their outfits and they go. And people are like, it's funny because I don't see any bachelor parties. And I was like, oh no, no. And I think as Nashville gained notoriety for bachelorette parties, I think all of a sudden the perception came and, and transportainment and I'm going to be on the back of a bus just going wild. And people would say, what happens if it rains? I go, rain is like gasoline falling from the sky because now they're wet <laughs> dancing and drunk on a bus. And it's like a white snake video. I mean, it just, it changes. And I think the perception of Nashville went from this is a fun, safe place to be to all of a sudden, this is a, this is a place where you're going to go get blackout drunk and it's socially acceptable. And I think when that happened, when you have all these young women showing up, it's like the shark's came like you know it's like all of a sudden where are the men well the men are there they don't dress up all together right. but when when the national news is this is where all the young single women go to party and get wasted all of a sudden it's like boom now this the all these men have shown up and this is like a hunting ground and all of a sudden it became this it's socially acceptable to get blackout drunk and there's all these women and it's just now it's just gotten out of control or it, it has it is i don't know i don't go down there i'm making full assumptions based around several years ago, but it's almost like this natural progression of, oh, this is where the women are. Now the men are here. And now it's just kind of a napalm. Well, a number of restaurant owners in that sort of greater downtown area have talked to me about how they see the shift that their clientele went from someone who maybe came in for a convention and was willing to, pay $15 for a couple of drinks and now it's people who are looking for the opportunity to drink the most for the least amount of money mm -hmm. and so that's shifted the way these businesses you know what they can sell and it, it is I mean it's a perceptible shift and I think we have to just you know make some decisions about as a city about if this is what we want um I don't know that I really see anything changing, to be honest with you. I, I do think that, you know, certainly we could see some crime statistics change, some some safety improvements with the, the new precinct that's going on Broadway. I think that that's a really positive change. Um, but in terms of, like, the party culture, I, I don't know that really – I think that – it just kind of is what it is at this point. I think a new football stadium is going to add a ton of fuel to yeah. that, too. I mean, just going to add more places and more people – it's funny, I went to a Titans game, went to the Bengals game a couple weeks ago. And it's interesting, and I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but it was half, I mean, not half, but I mean, there was a ton of Bengals fans there. Every time you go to a Titans game, there's so many fans from the other team. 
and I went to the opening game in Indianapolis. It was the Indianapolis Colts and the Jaguars. 99% of people in that stadium were wearing a dark blue color. There was seven Jaguars fans in the building. It was crazy. Then you go to a Nashville or you go to a Titans game, and it's like 50-50 almost. And then you go, oh, well, I don't think that's because the Titans don't have the fans. I think that's because everybody wants to go to Nashville. Yes. Nobody wants to go to Indianapolis for the weekend. They want to come to Nashville. Like their team's playing in Nashville. It's like, oh, let's make a weekend out of it. And that's I think that's unique about us. And that's only going to increase. Oh, do, yeah. do you remember that year? I don't know. 20, I don't know. 2008, 2009. The Bears played. Oh, yes, I do remember. It was actually later. It was like 2014, maybe. It was a solid 80% Bears fans. And they the Bears, I mean, Paradise Park was still open. Oh, yes, and I and was there after the game. The Bears, <laughs> like. There was not beer left. Yes, on Broadway because the Bears fans. That is the so Bears funny. Won, I remember that. Right, there Hurricane was, Dicka. There was actually no beer left. Yes, um, it was crazy. I do remember that specifically. I remember we went to Paradise Park and all they had left was Tall Boys of Ice House. Think about the variety of beers that were served at Paradise Park and in what quantity. And all they had left was Tall Boys of Ice House. I mean, it's it was it was really. It was, it was a wild weekend. I don't know if that says more about the Bears or the well, quality of Ice House. Both. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there are th- things that we could do as a city uh, to, make, to make a difference and make it a safer place and make it a place where you can go have fun. But the other thing is, is if, like your, your mission is to – drink as much as possible for as little money as possible, then you're not even getting you. I mean, you could do that anywhere. Like you're not even really getting that Nashville experience of what makes Broadway special about what makes Nashville special. I don't think people care. Uh, Well, some people care. Some people care, but I don't think that the majority of that demographic cares. No, what do you think the goal is of most people when they come to Nashville? And they, and because I would drive people again back to my Uber experience, you drive people, and I'm like, Where'd you guys go eat? And like, Oh, we went to Jack's barbecue, we went to the place, and everywhere they went was on Broadway. And you're like, Did you go outside of Broadway? Like, No, man, we're staying there. We've just been on Broadway every night. And you're like, But Nashville has so many other amazing things you can do while you're here. And I go, Have you been to the Parthenon? Like, what's that? And you're like, It's Right here, there's a full-scale replica of the Parthenon. And if you go inside, I mean, you wrote an you wrote a article about yeah. the um, the art gallery right. inside and how much how much cool things are at the Parthenon. It's not just the outside of it. But like that's just a tiny thing. That's it's not a tiny thing, but it's right there. It's not even far from downtown that you could experience here in Nashville. So and people al- just don't care. I also write these guidebooks. I've guidebook to Nashville. Guidebook to. Tennessee, one that goes from here to New Orleans down the Natchez Trace. So I write a lot about what tourists do or I think they should do. And I try to balance that between, okay, what are the things that people expect are going to be in this book? Like how Broadway focused should it be? And how much is my job to help people expand their experience? And, you know, the fact that we don't have the best public transportation system is not helpful for this but um so I am in some sort of different 
online groups where visitors are talking about what they do and where they go. And um, I'm fascinated by how many people stay at the Drury Hotel downtown because they have free breakfast and free drinks and free afternoon whatever food. And so people are eating there because it's free, again, air quotes, because that's part of the hotel price. But then they eat there and then they go to the to the honky tonks and they're they're not even going to a restaurant. I mean, it's not just that they're not they're only going to the Broadway restaurants, they're not going to a restaurant. I think it's hard for people like us to conceive of, but there's a lot of people that travel and don't care about food. Right. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. It's every trip I take is based around what am I going to eat? Same. But there's a lot of people that just don't care. They'll go to McDonald's. I, yeah, that's a true story. I, I just feel like the the culture has shifted from Nashville's a really great city to this is a place we can go get fucking wasted and try and hook up. I mean. Well, and it's not just tourists, too, though. I mean, I there's a lot of pe- young people that work for me that or on Broadway on the weekends after work. You know, it's where it's like the pickup place for people under 30. That seems to be that, that, that to me, it seems like that's just a, a, a thing. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to change it. I don't know if we need so, to change it. I just don't. You know, there's go there. this whole thing on TikTok of women who will go on TikTok. I've seen quite a few of these. Women who will go on TikTok and say, hey, if your husband was at a bachelor party and his in Nashville this weekend and his name is Steve and you live in San Antonio, here's what he was up to. And hitting on my friend and doing this and doing that, DM me, let's make this go viral and we are going to like girl code tell wow. you what's up. I've seen a lot of these and there's guys getting busted. Oh my gosh, I have not seen those. I have I'll, I'll, I'll send you is, some. It's, a, it's an interesting now. corner of TikTok. What also, stays Steve, in Nashville doesn't stay in Nashville. That's also, right. Steve is using his real name. <laughs> what, okay. Wow. I have, I don't know. I have all these high hopes for downtown when Fifth and Broad was opening and the Assembly Food Hall and the. Um, African-American Music Museum. I thought, you know, this was going to be so great because we were going to have this culture and so many locally owned restaurants, right? And, you know, I just thought that this was really going to help diversify people's experiences if they don't leave Broadway. But I'm not sure that's happened the way I envisioned it. If I am inclined to go down there, that is where I would go. Just this past weekend, we were meeting a friend for lunch and trying to decide where to go. And Tony suggested, oh, let's go to Bocaria. We, we love Bocaria, but I'm like, oh, I don't want to go downtown on a Sunday afternoon. So well, Before that Titans game, we went to Assembly Food Hall and took my kid. I'm with an eight-year-old. Right. Where, where am I going to go? What Hong Kong? So Assembly Food Hall is a great option because there's a lot of restaurants. There's ice cream. There's all the stuff. Right. You can take a kid up there and we can eat. And then we walked over to the game. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a great experience if you're going with somebody younger. Right. It's great. And it is great that there are so many locally owned businesses mm-hmm. and business restaurants that are representative of other parts of the city. Um, and I kind of was hoping it would almost be a gateway to, you know, people go there and then like, oh, well, if I like that, why don't I go check out these other places on Nolansville Pike? But that's not really a thing, I don't think. 
Well, yeah. we're we're almost at the hour mark. Okay. We are. I mean, you see how fast this goes. <laughs> You're this like, goes man, like we sat down uh, five minutes ago, yeah. but we're at fifty-four minutes. Wow. Well, I just one quick thing that I wanted to make sure that we did talk about is Margaret. You were telling me um, before the show started today about um, some new stuff that you became aware of that's happening with the sexual assault center. So, kind of to you know, put a little end cap here on our discussion. I'd love to hear about that. So there was a, a meeting I went to last night with the sexual assault center and Metro uh, about their safe bar program, which you all have talked about before, which is this training program uh, to help restaurants and bars train their staff to see the signs of sexual assault and also diffuse things before they happen. And it's a free program. And um, the probably going to get this name wrong, but the Women's Caucus of the Metro City Council has um, allocated funding to sort of help expand Safe Bar. And it was pretty inspiring to be at this meeting last night. Um, You know, the health department was talking about ways they could help spread the word. And, you know, there are these coasters that change color if a drink has been spiked. And so they were talking about, well, maybe the coasters could just be distributed by the health department workers who are going to all these rest you know they have to go to every restaurant and bar anyway and so like how great is that um and then talking about ways that this program can not only help the staff of restaurants and bars to rep to see those signs of assault among customers but also start talking about the ways that this training could help the staff internally, which I thought was just, I mean, one needed, but really inspiring. And um, the other thing that Rachel Friedman talked about a little bit was how they can provide some training both for journalists and for hospitality workers on how to deal with some of the trauma that they hear about. Because, man, it is really hard to listen to those stories and people who do it professionally have some tools that you know some of the rest of us don't so those all feel like pretty tangible affordable things that we can sort of do to start change I mean any of the kinds of change that we've been talking about today you know it's going to be incremental none of us are going to wake up tomorrow and have you know a completely different Broadway or a completely different transit system or different justice system. I mean, none of that happens overnight, but I do, I am pretty optimistic that there are lots of things that we can do to, to see incremental change. I want to give a plug because I think that that's all amazing stuff. And I love what the sexual assault center is doing, but we learned about the sexual assault center from Josh Buckley over at fat bottom brewing with the nation's brewing company. And he hooked us up with Lorraine and Jack over there, and they're amazing. But they, as a brewery and as, as a company, support the Sexual Assault Center. Um, they created a beer called Hope Pilsner. And I don't know if they're still doing the Hope Pilsner. And what I just looked up said in April they were um, donating 100% of net proceeds of the Hope Pilsner to the Sexual Assault Center. Um, 
Since 1978, the Sexual Assault Center has helped provide healing for over 35,000 people affected by sexual abuse and violence across Middle Tennessee, regardless of their ability to pay or offer statewide training and prevention programs. So they're doing amazing things, but I want to give a shout out to the Nations Brewing and Fat Bottom Brewery for being a beer company to really step up and help fund all of this stuff. And yeah. they, they're they doing great things over there and um, love what they're doing. They're they're a new sponsor for us. So oh, I wanted great. to give a shout out to what they're doing. And that's one of the reasons why I approached them for sponsorship was that I think it's a good natural fit for a local company who's supporting local initiatives like this. And they also own Lucky Duck um, on Gallatin in East Nashville, which is where this meeting was last night. Um, so they, they, the Nation's <laughs> Ring owns Lucky Duck? Uh, uh, Fat Bottom. Fat Bottom. Yeah. yeah. Or they have the same, I don't know if they own it, ownership structure or similar partners but so they hosted this meeting last night that's awesome see i mean and teddy's tavern and teddy's tavern and the the tap room over there but you know it's funny because i told him i said well do you mean to promote i don't really do restaurant promotion but if he's like no we we just it's just a vessel for our our beer we want you to go support the restaurants that are serving our beer and i was like that's really cool that's cool they're amazing um what do you want to do you have anything else you want to talk about i know i don't know what your time looks like but i want to be respectful of it um, we have talked about so many of the things that I wanted to talk about. I guess I didn't really come in with an agenda, <laughs> but um, I really appreciate both of you asking me to be here and also, you know, being open to, I think you have a really big vision of what the hospitality, a really inclusive big vision of what the hospitality community is like here. Um, and I think that's, that's good for all of us. Um, you know, what, Caroline, you and I talked about this a little bit. I, th one of the things that I guess I am concerned about as as Nashville continues to have this reputation, and we get all these kind of national names coming into the city, which is great, and they make great food, and it sort of raises our culinary profile. But I worry sometimes about that the it's harder for the local businesses to get seen. I mean, obviously these national brands or regional brands come in and they have more marketing money. So of course they um, get more coverage. And so I think um, what you all are doing to help sort of allow these locally owned businesses to tell their stories is super important. Thank you. That means a lot for you to say that. I mean, cause that, that is our mission. We want to elevate locally owned and operated businesses and for people to learn about them and the story behind them and, People want to support them, seeing that, hey, look, I'm a person. We talked about the Caroline and Tony are like the definition. They're a mom and pop. They, they are there all the time, and they're <laughs> running this building, and they're thinking of new ideas, and they support their community, and they're just well, – that's thanks. what I, but makes I communities, though. I feel like we talk about me too much on the show. Thank you. That's You're very just nice. You're an easy but example well, right there's here. there's so many. There's so many, and, and we're very lucky to have writers like you who are, are helping to elevate those those people and those stories as well. So thank you. Thanks. But I also think like the more people understand, see that there are people, um, the less, I mean, obviously you're always going to have angry people on the internet, but the, the less you're going to have those sorts of complaints that you were talking about on Yelp and more of people coming to you and saying, Hey, this happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, it was interesting in one of these other 
uh, visitors groups on the internet. I was talking about the one where everyone stays at the jewelry. Um, someone posted this week asking how hard it was to sneak a flask into the um, <laughs> honky tonks on Broadway because they didn't want to pay hey. for all the drinks they wanted to uh, drink. And I was pleasantly surprised, and this never happens in that group and rarely happens on the internet, but kind of people laid into this person and said, like, do you not understand what it takes to run a business? They have to pay rent. They have to blah, blah, blah. And, um, I mean, there was a little bit of, well, those businesses on Broadway are making a lot of money and the drinks are expensive. But for the most part, there was a lot of defending the businesses. The businesses. And I was so pleasantly surprised. That's nice to hear. Um, you know. I mean, good stuff. the answer was pre-game and then don't drink as much of the bar. But <laughs> exactly. But what a, whatever. Um, I was pretty pleasantly surprised by that. I love that. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here and come down here and sit with us in studio. This is it's been a lot of fun getting to know you a little bit better. Thanks to both of you. I um don't come because I'm in East Nashville. Don't come to this neighborhood that much. But um, I worked at Freedman's Army Navy as my co- one oh. of my college jobs. So it's always fun to like come down. Nice uh, down a memory lane. Nice. Yeah, we are right here. We're, we're I call it Hillsborough Village. Would you call this Hillsborough Village? Sure. Ish. I mean, we're right across the street from the Freedman's right there in the Mapco. I kind of think as of Blair as the end of Hillsborough Village. I don't know if I'm right. Right on the border. Yeah. yeah, I would say that. Because, you know, I would walk here from Vanderbilt, and this was, like, kind of, I think, I don't know, wouldn't have crossed Blair to walk It's like farther. once you cross 440, you're getting into Green Hills, yes. right? Yeah, I think this is. I think so. I think it's fair. Yeah. Well, we love that you're here. Well, thank you and so this much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks to and, both of um, you. Thanks, Margaret. Look forward to reading more of your stories, and um, I'll always love reading your stories. Thank and, you. Um, we will talk to you soon. Okay. I love seeing good. you at Cheekwood and all the yeah. places throughout the holidays. It's always fun. Yeah. We'll see you later. Thanks. Big thank you to Margaret Littman for joining us on the show today. And thank you again to you, the listener. Hope that you enjoyed that episode. And uh, we'll be bringing you more before we take our holiday break. Hope that you guys are being safe out there. And uh, love you guys. Bye.